take your Bibles and turn again to Luke chapter 4. We were here last week, and we'll finish up that third temptation. Luke chapter 4. We'll do a little bit of review today, and then finish up that last temptation. And then I have some applications to make. So Luke chapter 4. That last song mentioned change from glory into glory. God is at work in each of our lives, those of us that are his children, sending just the trials and the troubles and the uh, tribulations that we need in order to stretch our faith and build into us that image of Jesus Christ. So many times we want to just run away from those problems. We want those problems to go away. We pray that they'd be done and over and we wouldn't experience them anymore. And I get that. I'm human. I, I, I pray the same way a lot. Can, can we just be done with this one, Lord? Uh, can we just finish this one and, and, and be, you know, move on? And, and often, often, the greatest part of our response is that patience, knowing that God's put us there for a reason, knowing that God's chosen these circumstances for us on purpose. And uh, today, particularly, we're going to see that in the third temptation, we're going to see that temptation to escape, to force God's hand, to make him do something, because we're tired of this, and uh, to not be patient. I almost entitled this message, Faith is Faith and Folly is Folly, but I thought that would be too much focus on the negative aspect, and there's a lot of positive things that we can learn from this. Remember, I, uh, I uh, read to you First Peter 4.12 last week. It says, Brethren... Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Trials and troubles and tribulations are a part of the Christian life. In fact, those three, the trials and the troubles and the tribulations, are often designed by God to bring about an effect in our life. And if we will be patient, if we will rely on God's grace and, and be guided by His Word and walk in the Spirit, we can overcome. God always, God always wants us to overcome. But we will have temptations for as long as we live. James 1 tells us, My brethren, count it all joy when ye, when ye fall into diverse temptations. When, not if, but when. So we always will have temptations. And the key, the key to overcome, uh, overcoming temptations is to walk in the Spirit. Remember Galatians 5.16 says, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we want to walk in the Spirit. We want to experience that constant and consistent victory that God has for us. Now last week we looked at the first two temptations. The first temptation, of course, uh, Satan says, if you're the Son of God, which God the Father had just said at his baptism, this is my beloved Son. Now Satan comes along and says, can you really trust God's Word? If you're the Son of God, make these stones into bread. And remember Jesus' response. He quotes from Deuteronomy, but if I can summarize it, Jesus says, God's Word and my faith in God's Word is more essential than my daily food. And uh, we talked about moldy bread, how sometimes we try to get from Sunday to Sunday just on that sermon we heard on Sunday morning, and that's like buying your bread Sunday morning and trying to eat it all week. Now, it would work here in the United States, but let me tell you, overseas, where they don't put preservatives in their bread, your bread's going to be moldy by Tuesday or Wednesday. And nobody likes to eat moldy bread. 
That was the first temptation. The second temptation, Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And he says, you can have all this if you will just worship me. Now, we talked about the truth that Jesus does rule and he does reign. The difference between Satan's temptation and God's plan was a matter of the way of the cross. There was going to be suffering between that moment of temptation and when Jesus is crowned king. And Satan said, you know, we can do away with all that. We can take a shortcut to God's will. And so the second temptation is, do you trust God's plan? Now, those first two temptations make a lot of sense to me. They make a lot of sense to me. When you are hungry, if somebody says, here, eat something. Well, of course, you're hungry. You want to eat that, right? Imagine, second, think about the second temptation. Imagine if somebody offered you the ability to rule the whole world. Well, you could fix all the problems in America's political system. You could right all the injustices of the United States. You could end the war between Russia and Ukraine and save literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives. You could release all of the Christians from the slave camps in North Korea. Who wouldn't want to do that? I can see that temptation. But put me on a, the high pinnacle of the temple. Put me up there, I don't know, 100, 200 feet in the air and tell me to jump. And I don't see how that's a temptation. Uh, personally. Now, I know some of you, you're adrenaline junkies. So it'd be like, yeah, this is like bungee jumping without the bungee cord, right? You'd be like, yeah, skydiving without the parachute. I'm going to be rescued by angels, right? I'm going to post this on my social media. That, that's how some of you see this. I get it. But I don't see it that way. I don't, I don't understand. How is that? How is that a temptation to jump off of a high point? Well, let's keep a couple things in mind. The Bible tells us, and in fact, let's lead, read the text. Uh, Luke chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. And read to 13, you follow along, Luke 4, 9. And he, that's Satan, brought him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem. And he set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 92, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou, shalt, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all these temptations, all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Father, we're going to look at this passage, and I, I want to be merely the mouthpiece, the oracle of God, an opportunity for you to speak through your word to my sisters and my brothers in Christ. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide my words, to guide our thinking as we consider this passage and to understand this third temptation and how it, how it might look in our lives, Lord. So we ask for your help. We pray that you would be glorified in our trials and tribulations and temptations uh, as we overcome, have that consistent victory walking in the Spirit. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This temptation to, to jump off of the, the, the pinnacle of the temple uh, actually has a, a lot more sense, makes a lot more sense when you think about it than my initial response was. When I looked at it, I thought that would not be a temptation. Consider, first of all, that Jesus, the, the Bible says Satan's brought 
Jesus to the pinnacle of the, of the temple. And all those people at, in the temple, every day there's literally thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people who pass through the temple as part of their worship or part of their, their daily routine. Literally tens of thousands of people. And if Jesus could just jump off of that pinnacle and the angels come along and they rescue him, wouldn't that prove to these people that he was the son of God? So many of the miracles that Jesus does are often in private or, or a little bit separate from the rest of the, uh, of the crowd. Think about Jesus feeding the 5,000, for example. We know that they brought him some fish and some bread and Jesus started breaking it and putting it in baskets. And the disciples carried those baskets out to the 5,000 people who were seated on the grass. In a crowd of 5,000 people, you can't really see what's going on in any one point. So the disciples knew what had happened. The disciples knew that that food came out of literally nowhere. Jesus taking that little bit and multiplying it into enough to feed 5,000. In fact, more than 5,000 because you remember they gathered, afterwards they gathered 12 baskets full. The disciples saw that clearly. Maybe a few, the first few rows were just amazed at how much food came from Jesus' hands. But the vast crowd, they never saw that, did they? I thought about the time that Jesus said to the Sea of Galilee, peace, be still. And that incredible storm, that violent storm that seemed to be threatening them all with death immediately was, was still. How many people saw that? Just a handful of disciples saw that. Or even Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead. Now that would be something to see. But again, there was just a few people who saw that. Here Satan was offering Jesus. The temptation was, Jesus, listen, see all these thousands and tens of thousands of people here in the temple? You can immediately prove to them that you are the Son of God. It's another chance to shortcut, shortcut God's will, God's plan, and get to where Jesus will end up, but just a lot quicker. That's part of the temptation. But there's a second part of the temptation, and that to, is to tempt God. Now, this word tempt in verse 12 means to, to prove or to... Um, to prove or to subject to test. In other words, to see what someone will do. Think about the other time that this word comes up, this word tempt is in Genesis 22.1, where God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, God knew what Abraham was going to do. But what God was showing Abraham was what was in Abraham's heart to do. That was a test to see what Abraham was like. This word tempt is also used in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, referring back to Exodus, where the people tempted God in the wilderness and said, can God provide uh, a table? Can he provide food in the wilderness? And we know he can because he sent those little flocks of birds that the people killed. They ate so much bird meat that it ended up coming out their nose. So God is able to do it, but the people said, can God really do that? They tempted him, they tried him, they put him to the test. They said, is God the God who he says he is? And that's what Satan is saying to Jesus. Listen, we, we both know, right, what, what God will do. Why did you just jump and put God to the test and make him prove that he's God? You know what? We do this same thing sometimes. Think about the way we pray. I don't know, have you ever, I know I've prayed. I've said things like this to God. Um, 
God, if you really loved me, you would. I'm in the middle of a problem, and it's, it's, it's a pressure. It's, it's heavy, and I don't know what to do. So I say, God, listen, if you really cared about me, you would. Sometimes people have said to me, you know, I want you to pray this way. And I say, I, I, you know, I'm not sure that's the way we should pray. Well, listen, if God were really God, then he would do this. Or he would do that. There was a fellow in Mongolia. If God were really God, he would cure my father of cancer. Now, do you believe that God can cure cancer? I do. No doubt in my mind that God can. It's possible. It's within God's power to cure cancer. But I also know that God doesn't always cure people's cancer. And what we do when we put God to the test is we say, God, if you really are who you say you are, if you're really the good God, the loving God, the, the healing God, and you, you fill in the blank there, that you say you are, then you must do. And we try to force God's hand. That, force God's hand. That's what it means to tempt God. And God says, don't tempt me. Now, we ought to know who God is. We ought to know what kind of God we serve. But we don't need to constantly put him to the test and say, oh, you failed that one. Well, if, if you really are God, you're going to do it this way for me this time. That's not the spirit we're to have. And this is the, the temptation that Satan is putting in front of Jesus. Do you really trust God's character? Do you really think God's going to help you here at this point? If you do, go ahead. Just, just go for it. Don't wait. Don't worry about what God's will is. You force God's hand. Let me give you a couple people, and I, a couple people in the Bible who tried to force God's hand. Um, you remember the story of King Ahab, and he steals uh, a vineyard in Jezreel from Naboth. And when he does that, Elijah comes to King Ahab and he says, "King Ahab, I've got a message for you from God. The same place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood." The dogs are going to lick up your blood. That was God's message. Well, sometime later, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when, but sometime later, King Ahab decides he wants to go to war. And he's going to go to war in a place called Ramoth of Gilead. Not Jezreel. That's where the blood was that the dogs licked up from Naboth. He's going to go to this town and it's, I don't know, 90, 100 miles away. And I don't know because I wasn't in King Ahab's head, but I can imagine King Ahab thinking this. Listen, if God's going to keep his word, I can't die there in Ramoth because my blood has to be licked up here in Jezreel. So I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to. And so he gets Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat to, to join him. Remember, King Ahab puts on uh, a disguise so that the Syrians won't know who the king is. Long story short, does King Ahab die in Ramoth? The answer is yes. And do the dogs lick up his blood in Jezreel? And the answer is yes. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, because he shot by an arrow, a chance arrow, a man drawing his bow at random. That arrow it somehow, somehow gets between the joints in his armor and he begins to bleed in his chariot. And he bleeds to death in his chariot. Meanwhile, they're driving the chariot back to Jezreel. And they wash the chariot out there where they had killed Naboth. And the dogs lick the blood of Ahab in the same place where they licked up Naboth's blood. And God has proven to be right. But in a way that nobody suspects. 
And I think we can tempt God sometimes in the same way. I, I'm not saying putting our lives on the line, but saying, hey, you know, God, if you're going to keep your word, you can't do this or you must do that because we don't understand all that God understands. And the difference between faith and folly is this. Faith is not believing that God can, but that God will. That God will through me to the point of stepping out. I look at God, I look at his word, I say, I know this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to do it. That's faith. Folly is when it's not believing that God can, but believing that God must. He must do it my way. And if he doesn't do it my way, he's not really God. That's folly. That's testing God. I don't tell God what to do. God tells me what to do. And if God the Father would have told Jesus as he was standing on the pinnacle of the temple, jump, God would have saved. God the Father would have saved God the Son. I, I, I have no doubt about that. But it wasn't God's will. And you cannot force God to do what you want him to do. Let me give you another uh, incident, another event from the Bible. In fact, this one's in Luke chapter 4. Uh, look with me at verse uh, um, 29. Luke chapter 4, verse 29 says this, And rose up, these are the people of Nazareth, they rose up and thrust him, Jesus, out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. You remember Jesus had been preaching in the synagogue of Nazareth, and what he said, even though it was God's word, what he said upset the people. It upset them so much they decided they were going to kill him. So they take him to the brow, the edge of a precipice. Their city was built there on a hill, right to the edge of a precipice. Some of you may have visited Israel. You've seen that precipice. You don't want to fall off that precipice. And they're going to just throw him off. Why doesn't Jesus say, let me show you one better. I'm going to jump. Because the angels will save me. Because that's not God's the Father's will. And you can't tell God what you're going to do and expect God to come to your rescue. That's not faith. That's folly. But so many times God says, listen, you're, you're going about this the wrong way. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to wait. You don't have to discern God's will. You just do what makes sense to you and God will rescue you. God will save you. Now we serve an infinitely merciful God and I don't know how many times God has saved me from myself. But I sure don't want to tempt God. I don't want to put him to the test. I don't want to say, God, you're going to do it my way or else. When you know God, when you know his character and you know his personality, then you can let him design things to be as he intends for them to be and be patient with him and wait on him. The problem is when we're in the middle of the trials and the tribulations and the, and the trouble, we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, aren't we? We're tempted to doubt God's love. And I've been there. When things are going well and somebody comes along and say, isn't God good? I say, yes, God is good. But I've been in places where I'm struggling and someone comes along and says, isn't God good? And I think to my, I never say this, but I think to myself, no, he's not very good right now. Why am I doubting his goodness? Because of my circumstances. God hasn't changed. I'm the one who's changed. But what is Jesus' response? What is Jesus' response to uh, Satan when Satan tempts him to jump from that pinnacle, back to verse 12, Luke 4, 12, Jesus answering said to him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I don't, Jesus' response is, I don't need to tempt God. I don't need to try God's character. I don't need to test God's character 
because Jesus knew how God the Father would respond. He doesn't need to test it. So what is this difference between faith and folly? How can I know that this is what God's asking me to do and I need to step out by faith? And how do I know when it's just folly and stepping out is literally stepping off the cliff? How do I know the difference? Well, one way you can tell the difference is your personal motivation for doing it. Are you doing it for God's glory so that God looks good? So that God gets credit for what he's called you to do? Or are you simply doing it because it'll be easier for you? Or it'll make you famous? That's, that's the temptation for Jesus. I'll just jump off this pinnacle. Immediately thousands and thousands of people will see me. I'm right here in the middle of Jerusalem. Within hours, word's going to get out and I'll be famous. He's not doing it for, he would not have been, he did not do it. So <laughs> he, he, he would not have been doing it for God, the Father's glory. Second question that I ask myself, am I confident that the step I'm about to take is God's will and that it's God's timing for me? Or am I just being self-willed and impatient? Am I just looking for a shortcut? And I just want this over with, so I'm going to do this now and I'll make God, I'll make God figure it out. There have been times in my life where I knew what God's will was, what his next step was for me, but God said, no, I want you to just wait right here. Don't take that step yet. And every time I've been like, come on, I'll just take it anyway. God will figure it out. Again, God is good. And in his mercy, he often saves us from ourselves. But let's not tempt the Lord our God. Let's not put him to the test as if we need further proof that God is on our side. I'm going to use an example here with money because money is quantifiable. It's not always the best example, but it works here. It's like deciding you're going to spend recklessly without budgeting your money, and you're going to claim God's promise that he will supply all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Now, will God supply all your needs when you're walking in his will? Yes. Time and again. Time and again, I've seen God do miraculous things. Uh, things I didn't expect. I, I would have never planned it that way. And God just steps in, intervenes. Here's some money. Here's a car. Here's a building. And all kinds of things God's provided for me. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't budget my money and spend carefully. That doesn't mean I could just spend like there's no tomorrow because, hey, guess what? God's going to take care of me. One is faith. Waiting on God, recognizing this is God's will. Okay, I'm going to spend my money here. And one is folly. I'm just going to do what I want and I'm going to let God figure it out. I'm just going to do what I want and he's promised to provide. That's why, and we're going to, I'm going to mention this again tonight. Prayer doesn't obligate God to solve my problems. Prayer empowers me to solve my problems God's way. Prayer is not me going to God and saying, God, here's all my problems and here's what you're going to do about them. Prayer is me going to God and saying, God, here's all my problems. You're going to have to help me. One is faith and the other is folly. So how well do you know God's character? Because when you know God's character and you know who God is because you've spent time in his word, because you've spent time in prayer with him, it's easier to choose his way. It's easier to choose to wait. It's easier to walk his path. 
when you think you know God, you're pretty sure you have a good idea, but you're not quite sure, then you're more likely, like I said, to step into folly, to step off the cliff, to say, God, save me on your way down. Now, I want you to notice here in Luke chapter 4 that these temptations, they come to an end. Luke 4.13, I mentioned this last week, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And when it comes to faith or folly, when it comes to following God and his will or just doing it my own way and asking God to fix things, it's important for me to remember that when you're going through a trial or a temptation or a test, it seems like it will never end. It seems like what you need to do is just hurry up the process. You need to force God to bring a resolution to it. And that is not the answer. Because your problems are not eternal. There will be an end to them. Now some people, God puts on them chronic illness. God puts on them a, a, a mental illness. God puts on them some weight that lasts their entire life. But even those chronic things, they do come to an end, don't they? And so often it seems to me like my problems are never going to end. Like things are never going to be different. Like this is always going to be the way it's... And so I just need to force God's hand. I need to manipulate the situation. I need to do something, anything, so that God is forced to bring a resolution to this. I need to just jump off the pinnacle and hope the angels rescue me before I hit the bottom. That's folly. Faith often involves patience, waiting for God to give you the permission to take that next step. I want you to notice the second thing about this temptation, though, and it says in Matthew chapter 4, this detail is not recorded in Luke 4, but in this same parallel passage in Matthew 4, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. You don't get to the angels came and ministered unto you until you've gone through the temptation. Wouldn't it be nice if we just have the angels ministering to us without all the trouble? But the truth is, we often feel closest to Jesus. Now, it's not that Jesus is any closer to us. I know that. But we feel closer to Jesus when we've gone through temptation and we've overcome by the word of his testimony, by the power of his grace. Remind yourself that when you're in the midst of trouble, God cares deeply for you. Notice the two verses that we often quote separately, but that are right together in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, chap, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. We know that verse. You know what the very next verse is? Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And when you're in the middle of temptation, you're in the middle of trouble, you're in the middle of trials, when turmoil is swirling all about you, the temptation is, God doesn't care. He's not going to help me this time. Doesn't matter whether I pray or not. And you're opening the door for Satan to come in and devour you because that's what he wants to do. Instead, we cast all our care upon him. We can be assured and reminded that Jesus shares our infirmities. He doesn't share our sinfulness, but he shares our infirmities. He knows what it's like to be human and he knows what it's like to be tempted. He cares about us. 
And then in Luke 4.14, it says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He was full of the Holy Ghost when he left in verse 1. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. While he was in the wilderness, he experienced temptation. I, I, I said last week, just let me remind you, God did not lead him to temptation, but he led him to a place where he would be tempted. He went through that temptation and he came out of it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit and experience that consistent and constant victory over sin, the result is that you too have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's will for other things in your life. Now that doesn't mean that everything went right because the very next event that's recorded, Jesus overcomes temptation. He goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes to Nazareth. He teaches in the synagogue. And what happens? His own people reject him and they're ready to kill him. So again, don't misunderstand. You know, you get through this period of temptation and everything goes great. No, you probably just go from temptation to temptation. From problem to problem. From trial to tribulation. From tribulation to trouble. But if you'll walk in the Spirit, you'll you will experience consistent, constant victory. So let me give you some applications. And I want to give you applications not just from today's, do you trust God's character, but also from last week's temptation, do you trust God's word? And also, do you trust, um, do you trust God's plan for your life? As I mentioned, if you really trust God's word, you're going to spend time in it every day. You're not going to be satisfied with moldy bread. You're going to want to get fresh bread every day out of his word. Are you doing that? Are you experiencing times of refreshing every day from the Lord? Number two, when it comes to trusting God's plan, can you wait when God tells you to wait? Again, we talked about the truth that Jesus says in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me. Here in Luke chapter 4, some years ahead of that, Satan tempts Jesus. He says, listen, I can give you all power. Well, Jesus was going to get all power anyway. The temptation was, let's take a shortcut. Let's not wait. Young people, when God tells you to wait, trust me, waiting is the best thing you can do. So many young people, I, I was there, I'm, I was in a hurry. I was always trying to accomplish the next thing. I, I didn't want to wait for anything. Don't be in a hurry when God tells you to wait. But secondly, when it comes to trusting God's plan, are you committed to worshiping and serving Him regardless of the cost? Because God's way is the way of the cross. And so often when we see injustice or suffering ahead of us, that's when we want to bail out. We're not willing to do that for God. But when Jesus said to Satan, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. He was saying, I'm willing to worship God the Father. I'm willing to serve God the Father regardless of the personal cost to me. Are you willing to say the same thing in your life? And then do you know God's character? Do you know God's character so well that you know how he will respond? Or... Are you trying to find a way to force God's hand? You, you'd love to be on the pinnacle of the temple so you could say, okay, God, I'm going to jump now and you're going to have to rescue me before I hit the bottom. That's not the attitude of, of knowing God's character. That's the attitude of trying to force God's hand. Let me encourage you to get to know God. There's two books that I would suggest reading. 
if you've not already, one is by A.W. Tozer. His book, The Knowledge of the Holy, goes through some of God's attributes, some of God's characteristics. And if you've never read that book, let me encourage you to get it and read it. It's only maybe 100 pages, 120 pages. It's not particularly long, but it's a good way to to get to know God and His attributes better. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. There's another book, and I've given some of you a copy of this book. It's also a short book. It's probably even shorter than The Knowledge of the Holy. It's called Red Sea Rules by a man named Robert Morgan. And he talks about how God led his people right there to the edge of the Red Sea. You remember that God led them there to the edge of the Red Sea. And then they got there to the edge of the Red Sea, and they looked in front of them, and there's water. All about them are mountains. And what's behind them? The army of Egypt, the chariots of Egypt. And they say to Moses, you just brought us out here to kill us. Now, if you've never felt like God's brought you to a place just to leave you there, just to let you die there, you have not lived long enough as a Christian. Because invariably, it seems like God leads us down a path and we think we know what's at the other end. The the Israelites were expecting the promised land and instead they get to the edge of the Red Sea, mountains all around them, the enemy behind them. And it's easy in those moments to forget who God is. The book Red Sea Rules teaches us some of the things we can learn about God, about his, some of the things we can learn about God through the way that he dealt with the Israelites. I mentioned last week what prompted these sermons last week and this week is that I know so many of you are going through some deep waters. You're experiencing some trials and tribulations and it feels in the moment, it feels overwhelming. And I want to encourage you that God is there with you. In fact, not only is God there with you, he's brought you to this place for a reason. You can trust him. You can trust his word. You can trust his plan. And you can trust his character. Father, thank you. Thank you for promising you'll never leave us. And you'll never forsake us. There have been times in my life where I felt, it seemed to me in my humanness that you had gone on a trip, you'd gone on a vacation and and you had left me to my own devices and that was my own sinfulness. Father, thank you for your mercy, for forgiving me, for reassuring me in those times that you were right there. Not only were you right there, but you brought me to those times for a reason. And I pray that these that are going through difficult times, these that are tempted to not trust your word, to not trust your plan, to not trust your character, to take a shortcut, to force your hand, to try to manipulate you. I pray for these that they would learn to trust you. That through this experience, as painful as it may be, as unjust as it may be, as hurtful as it may be, that they would learn again, experience again, that you're with them every moment, that they can cast their care upon you because you do genuinely care for them. You know them and you care for them. I pray that we'd not be devoured by our enemy because we give up. We'd not be tricked by our enemy into taking a leap into the unknown that you've not called us to take. We wouldn't be tempted to force your hand and to prove again what kind of God you are but rather we would rest in your goodness and wait on the Lord and that you would strengthen our hearts. 
Again, for those that are not experiencing that kind of trouble, may we look around and see those that are and find a way to encourage and strengthen them. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.